Welcome to Minnesota Matters. I'm Scott Peterson, and I'm joined by MNN's Bill Werner, Tasha Radel, and Mike Grimm. We're going to delve into what's going on in the North Star State. If it matters in Minnesota, we've got it covered. This week, a local spin on National Bullying Awareness Month and the Minnesota Lynx become basketball champs for the fourth time in seven seasons. But first... We learned this week that a Minnesotan, 44-year-old Steve Berger from Shorewood, was among the dead in the mass shooting in Las Vegas, the worst in U.S. history. A former St. Paul resident, Phil Ulrich, was critically wounded, and other Minnesotans narrowly escaped with their lives when the shooting began. The tragedy has reignited the long-simmering debate over gun control, and MNN's Bill Werner has been following that story. Scott, a number of Democrats are calling for universal background checks on gun purchases, plus other measures. Gubernatorial hopeful Aaron Murphy, a Democrat from St. Paul, called on all candidates for Minnesota governor to return any campaign contributions received from the NRA, specifically singling out fellow DFLer Congressman Tim Walls, who a number of analysts say is the current front runner in the race for governor. We'll get to that intra-party squabbling in a minute, but first, the issue itself. We asked Murphy, why background checks? As I have served in the legislature and elective office, we have, over the course of years, seen tragedy after tragedy occur across the country as a result of gun violence. Uh, We are uh, not seeing a corresponding reaction on the part of the Congress or legislative bodies to deal with it. And I have seen so up close and personal the power, the outsized power of the National Rifle Association in really putting the brakes on any efforts uh, that would limit suicide uh, violence by gun, that would uh, tackle campaign finance disclosure, that would allow us to move forward with common sense universal background checks. Uh, The NRA NRA wields a tremendous amount of power. And I think as we witness what we saw happen in Las Vegas and the cost to human life, that tragedy, uh, it's time for us to recognize that it, we need to push the NRA back uh, out of our politics so we can use the kind of politics that I believe in, the kind that improves people's lives, uh, and work to bring common-sense solutions forward so an American family, wherever they live, here in Minnesota or anywhere else, doesn't have to suffer that kind of tragedy again. For a response, we talked with Andrew Rothman with the Minnesota-based Gun Owners Civil Rights Alliance. Basically, I think the the implication in what she's saying is that there may have been less of a chance of tragedies like what happened in Las Vegas if we had background checks and other measures. What do you think about that? Well, that's the refrain that we always hear from people who want to restrict Second Amendment rights. But if you look at the data, if you look at the mass shootings that have occurred in the last two decades, pretty much none of them would have been stopped by what... uh, Representative Murphy calls universal background checks. Uh, The murderer in Las Vegas had no criminal record and uh, could have and most likely did pass any number of background checks. And so a background check would not have made a difference in that case. Uh, The mass murderers at Virginia Tech and at uh, the, the Batman shooting in Colorado these murderers passed background checks. They didn't have a criminal record or anything else that would preclude them. Uh, The Red Lake Reservation 
mass murderer and the Sandy Hook mass murderer both killed uh, parents and stole their guns to commit the mass murder, a background check wouldn't have helped. And the fact is, this universal background check call wouldn't do anything. In a vast majority of these cases, the background check system at the federal level works okay, but it has more false positives than it does correct positives. And when Representative Murphy talks about a universal background check, what she really means is the universal registration of firearms, and that is with the goal of eventually confiscating those firearms from Americans. And Americans have gotten too smart for that, and we're not going to have any of it. Back to Representative Murphy for a response. The status quo, the doing nothing that is coming out of legislative bodies in the Congress right now, mean that we will continue to see these kind of tragedies. And it is time for people elected to represent the interests and the public safety and the well-being of people in this country. It's time for us to dig in and take action. There will be multiple solutions. They don't all involve um, guns. But we're not able to have any reasonable discussion about solutions uh, because people are unwilling to engage for fear that they, for fear of repercussions by the NRA. Now, in your call for candidates for Minnesota governor to give back all campaign contributions from the NRA, you specifically single out Democrat Tim Walz. Why is that? Well, he, among others in the race who may have accepted money from the NRA, those of us that are running for governor, you know, I hope that I am elected to that office and I hope to serve for eight years. And I would like to use those eight years to make progress on behalf of the people to build our bright future. And I want to make sure that we're able to do that um, by focusing on Minnesotans and Minnesotans' interests. In a Facebook posting, Walls says, quote, As a member of Congress, I support universal background check legislation, oppose conceal and carry legislation before Congress, and oppose legislation to reduce restrictions on gun silencers. Walls goes on to say, if elected governor, quote, I will work to ensure that Minnesota passes universal background check legislation. I will support increased funding for mental health services and support additional restrictions that ensure that Minnesota keeps guns out of the hands of dangerous people. I will fight any legislation that seeks to make it easier for dangerous people to get access to guns. Walls adds he's donating money he received from the NRA to the Intrepid Fallen Heroes Fund, which he says cares for the families of those who give their lives for our country. Scott? Thank you, Bill. I'll be back with another perspective on the aftermath of the Las Vegas shootings when Minnesota Matters returns. Welcome back to Minnesota Matters. I'm Scott Peterson. The shock of what happened last Sunday in Las Vegas is still reverberating around the country as Americans look for answers and try to comprehend how such a tragic massacre could happen. For parents with young children or teens, talking about events like Vegas can be difficult, and knowing where to begin may be the hardest part. I got some insight from University of Minnesota child development expert Dr. Abby Gewertz about how to start the conversation. That depends on how old your kids are and what the, what the situation is. So um, I, hate, I know I hate the fact that we researchers always say it depends. Um, but maybe a principle should be, in terms of starting the conversation, start with your child in mind rather than yourself. So don't make assumptions based on you know, what you know or what you think. Put yourself in your child's shoes to the extent possible. 
Is it necessarily a good idea as a parent to, to have when you're having this conversation with a child to to try to to make sense of what happened? Is that a is that a hurdle or is that something that you should be trying to do? Well, can we really make sense of what happened? I guess that's sort of a philosophical question. I, I would say. Um, if you're if you're talking about a teenager, teenagers understand that sometimes terrible things just don't make sense. They're random, you know. You happen to have been at that concert, or you couldn't get tickets, but you wish you had. You had, or your parents said you're not going there, and you missed it, or you were thought you were so lucky because someone snagged you the tickets you wanted. I mean. Things are so random and particularly these terrifying, awful events, and that's the nature of traumatic events, that we don't have any control over what happens. Um, I think with very, so that's the issue with teenagers. They have the capability to understand those kinds of things, at least intellectually, if not emotionally. With young children, they need more straightforward and concrete answers but never try and sugarcoat it. Never try and um, provide bland reassurances. Um, but answer as honestly and directly as you can without providing the level of detail that might really, really distress a child. So why, when a, when a six-year-old asks, why did this awful thing happen? Why did these people, why, would, why did this man have a gun, right? You're not going to go into the pros and cons of gun ownership <laughs> or, um, you know, why people do terrible things. Um, but you might say um, this was just a really bad thing, a really, really awful thing that happened. And we, your dad and I, are doing everything that we can to keep you safe. And we live in a pretty safe world mostly. I think that's a really important thing for kids to know. Right? The fact is that the vast majority of time, nothing worse than noise happens at a concert. You talked about that level of detail, and again, I'm, I'm sure that the answer sort of depends on the child and on the age, but when it comes to level of detail, how much... Uh, TV or news media is is healthy to let uh, youngsters see of these horrific events. I, I I get the feeling sometimes that that exacerbates the anxiety in a in a youngster, but um, maybe not necessarily. I guess that's my question. How helpful or unhelpful is that? I think it's generally unhelpful to expose children, and sometimes really quite harmful to expose children to continued news coverage. I think the obsession with talking about the details of what happened and um, showing over and over again video coverage is really for us adults. But children, um, it's bad for a number of reasons. The first reason is that young children, and this we found out in the wake of the 9-11 attacks, don't understand when you show the same footage over and over again that it only happened once. They think if you're showing it many times, it means it happened many times. And young children often don't understand distance and time. And, you know, if 
this is what the news is focusing on for three days, then this terrible thing must have lasted for three days. You mentioned the random nature of these kinds of events, and, and a, a sort of a reassurance can be a, a helpful thing to do. But I'm wondering, from, from the other side of things, as a parent, uh, when we see these things that are so heavily publicized, it, it, it may seem uh, like it happens more often maybe than it actually does, but uh, it tends to be something that makes us uh, overly cautious, perhaps. I mean, is there is there something that a parent can do to try to put this in perspective, to not try to become overprotective of their children when they see random things like this happening? Absolutely, 100%. Because if you had the television on all the time, you'd think that our world was absolutely chock full of horrific events. And it's not. I mean, the reality is, and I can remember talking about this in the wake of state of school shootings, you know, school is still the safest place for kids. And mostly, for most kids, almost all the time, their neighborhoods and their families are safe places to be. And so that, I don't think it's a bland reassurance. I think it's actually a fact. It's important to, to have that knowledge and share that knowledge and for, for us to remind ourselves that we generally live in a pretty safe place um, and a safe society and a safe country. And um, that is, I think that can be very reassuring. And it's not a bland reassurance. It's not like you're saying to a child, um, which we want to do, oh, I'll always keep you safe because you can't, no one can make that promise. Of course, you'll always do what you can to keep your child safe, but what you can say to your child is that their world is generally a safe place for most children. Thank you to my guest, the U of M's Dr. Abby Gewertz, for shedding light on a difficult subject that we'll all be dealing with in the days, weeks, and months ahead. Minnesota Matters returns after this. Welcome back to Minnesota Matters. More than one out of every five students report being bullied. And to tackle this ongoing issue, October has been designated National Bullying Prevention Month. MNN's Tasha Radel has more. Joining me now is Julie Herzog, director of Minnesota-based PACERS National Bullying Prevention Center. Julie, give us some background on this month's campaign. The month was initiated in 2006, and so it's been 10 plus years now, well over a decade. And it was initiated by our, initiated by our organization, Pacer Center. And it's a great opportunity to just start having dialogue and conversation about the issue of bullying. So not only parents talking to kids or schools talking with their students, but really bringing this conversation into the community because Bullying can only be prevented when we're all looking at it in the same way, that we're saying that bullying is not an acceptable part of our society, that every kid deserves to be safe at school, while they're online, and in the community. And so October presents a great time to have that to have that initial dialogue. And, and again, it may be a month, um, you know, it's time to bring awareness, but we really look at something bullying prevention that uh, is something that we need to look at year-round. And, you know, just how common is bullying? Uh, do we have any statistics uh, on that, Julie? I would say the statistics vary, but there's a research that's done every year by the federal government that indicates that one out of every five students reports being bullied. 
And I would also add the caveat that, you know, that's just how many kids are reporting it. And I think there's a lot of incidents that go unreported with bullying as well. And so it's a significant issue for our kids. If you think about more than 20% of them are, are actually telling an adult that they're being bullied. And, and I would say conversely with that, there's also a pretty powerful statistic that says over 60% of kids don't report being bullied. And so if you think about that, um, you know, the, the incidence could be very, very high. And, you know, I don't know if, uh, if you'd have any comment to this, but um, from what I've been seeing and witnessing is that bullying, I used to think it was kind of a middle school thing, but it, it seems like it's starting even at the, the elementary level. I guess uh, bullying doesn't discriminate when it comes to age. Unfortunately, you're right. It doesn't discriminate. And statistically, uh, the, the research shows that middle school is still where bullying is most prevalent, where the incident rate is highest. But we do hear, even from parents of very young children who are saying that, you know, their kids are being um, intentionally pushed around or told that they can't play with somebody, and and it's being done repeatedly because that's one of the hallmarks of bullying. It's not just a one-time incident. There's a pattern of behavior there. And so, yes, you know, and I, I think bullying has always happened at a very young age, but again, we're, we're maybe recognizing that more now than we did in the past. You know, I remember um, being younger and bullying kind of seemed to happen on, on the school playground, but now with social media, has that changed a bit, Julie? It has absolutely changed the, changed the dynamic. And, and again, bullying does still happen in our playgrounds, in our neighborhoods, as it traditionally always has. But the with the evolution of social media, that the kids just have a whole new avenue to reach each other that they never had in the past. And and if you think about it, kids used to have sort of a safe haven when they went home from school. Um, you know, they could block out the bullying. But now, when the kids are accessing their their phones or their tablets or their desktop computers with social media, literally, it's twenty four seven. And, you know, for a parent uh, listening out there, whether they have a child that's being bullied or their child perhaps is the one that is bullying, um, any message for parents today, Julie? Yeah, absolutely. With, you know, with our kids, I think just having that conversation and, and opening up that, that kind of dialogue, especially with young kids, just about how do what are your expectations about how we treat each other? And, you know, I think the message for kids who are experiencing bullying is making sure their parents share that you're not alone, that we're going to be here to help you, because so often kids hesitate to tell. And, you know, some of that is don't be a tattletale or, you know, a lot of those messages that we've given through generations. But to say that you're not alone, we're going to help you, we're going to problem solve, we're going to... Um, we're going to advocate for you. We're going to we're going to help you through this scenario. And also, I think for for parents who find out that their child is the one doing the bullying, you know, take heart. Um, we say be bullying is about behavior, and behavior can be changed. And so, again, be having that conversation, be making sure there's consequences, but that have meaning and that kids can learn from. And Tasha, I would also add just. For those parents who maybe their kids aren't experiencing bullying or they're not the ones bullying, um, they're still a powerful force, and I like to think of them as being advocates for others.
Thanks again to my guest, Julie Herzog, director of Minnesota-based Pacers National Bullying Prevention Center. For more information on National Bullying Prevention Month, you can head to their website at pacer.org. Back to you, Scott. Thank you, Tasha. Minnesota Matters will return after this. Welcome back to Minnesota Matters. The Minnesota Lynx won their fourth WNBA championship in the past seven years with a Game 5 win on Wednesday night over Los Angeles, the team that beat them a year ago in Game 5. With Target Center under renovation, the XL Energy Center being used for hockey, team owner Glenn Taylor spent a lot of money to keep the games in the Twin Cities by installing temporary air conditioning and other amenities at Williams Arena. And as MNN Sports Director Mike Grimm tells us, the place was jammed. Scott Williams Arena was absolutely rocking on Wednesday night, fueled by Hutchinson native Lindsey Whalen, who first came into the mainstream Minnesota sports world with her play in that building as a Golden Gopher. And on Wednesday, she was putting an exclamation point on everything as the clock wound down in Game 5. Dogs off the back iron. Brunson is there for the rebound. Outlets to Sill. Hands off to Whalen. Into the front court. Lindsey hacked by Parker and high steps away to the free throw line as the barn explodes. 8.3 seconds remaining. Minnesota up 83-76. The hometown hero, Lindsey Whalen. You couldn't write a better script for a movie if you tried. About to ice game five of the WNBA Finals on the court where her career took off. The University of Minnesota here at the barn. That's John Folke on Lynx Radio. Wayland says she's thankful that owner Glenn Taylor made arrangements to have the games played at Williams Arena instead of somewhere else. I knew it was going to be special for us. I didn't exactly know how it was going to turn out. I mean, I just kind of felt like I felt good about it. I felt good about our chances being in this building because um, I, I know what I know. I've been a part of some special games here and so and some special runs. And, you know, for him to have that commitment to us um, and to our fans is really, um, you know, is really special. And, you know, we owed it to him to, to, to give it our best shot. And then the final ticks wound off the clock at the old barn. Maya's got the rebound. Maya will hold. The horn sounds and the Minnesota Lynx match the Houston Comets for the most WNBA championships in league history as they win their fourth in the past seven years. And Rebecca Brunson becomes the winningest player with her fifth WNBA championship as the Lynx get some revenge against the LA Sparks here in game five with an 85-76 victory. Whalen says it was something special, a fourth title trophy. We stuck it together. We stuck throughout um, thick and thin all season in this game, thick and thin. Um, there were some runs. They, they had some, you know, they cut it obviously to three there um, with a couple of our turnovers at the end, but, you know, we didn't panic. Like Coach said, at, at a certain point, um, you know, players make plays, and Maya made that runner at the free throw line, was, which, is, which is why she's Maya Moore. And so which is also why we like her on our team. And Whalen says the fourth title is the best title. I think every time you do this, it just gets a little more special because it gets a little harder and it gets a little more um, meaningful because you know it's not easy. You know it's not something that we try to take for granted ever. We've now been on this journey together, I mean, since 2010, but 2011 is when our first ring. And every year since then, it gets it gets a little tougher, but... We keep coming back. Head coach Cheryl Reeve was quite emotional after the victory. I, I can't tell you how blessed I feel to just be around these guys every day. They, you know, most importantly, what about this group is they, we, we let each other be ourselves. 
And there is so much to be said for that. I'm not easy to be around. And, and, and our staff, I think about our daily process together. And like I said, you guys aren't in it every day, so you don't know. This is, you know, obviously it's the most special time in our lives from a professional standpoint, but it's the people. It's the people that we do it with. That just, you know, um, we're in it for life. This group, we're in it for life. And, and that's just uh, an incredible blessing that I feel to be able to be around it every single day. She says she's thankful. I mean, I think the overwhelming feeling that I have is just being so happy for this group of five players that give give their all, the way that they conduct themselves, the tremendous professionals. I know that they wanted this. They, they wanted to take their place uh, next to the Houston Comets. I know that. They wanted that last year, and so they did it. And so now they have four. It's, it's, I mean, it's just a little bit surreal right now. I'm happy we won at home for our fans. Our fans were unbelievable. Uh, I would be remiss if I didn't talk about Glenn Taylor, Glenn and Becky Taylor, who made sure that we stayed in the Twin Cities for this finals because, and for them to step up, and for our business staff to pick up an operation and move it over here, uh, for the University of Minnesota to share their facility with us, you know, that's what it is. It's teamwork. It's teamwork. And, and, you know, at the end of the day, I know all those people did this for our team, for, you know, I mean, we're, we're deeper than the, f the first five, but our identity is the first five. And so I know that everyone wanted to do all that they could to put this team in position to do what they did because the group is just so special. The Minnesota Lynx are WNBA champions again. Scott? Thank you, Mike. It's nice to wrap up the show on something of a positive note. That's going to do it for this week. Thank you for listening, and please tune in again next week for Minnesota Matters on this MNN station.